Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well now, history friends, what on earth is this? Well, I'm so glad you asked. You're here with When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley, and this is something a little bit special. I know I said they wouldn't be returning until we dropped the Thirty Years' War in a few weeks' time, but I got an offer that I simply couldn't refuse. By that, I mean those two lovely folks over at Diplomacy Games Podcast, or DiplomacyGames.com. Kaner and Ambi are their names, well, that's their player names, which I've been told to use, because what am I talking about? Well, let me just put it this way. Do you know what the game Diplomacy is? I've mentioned it a few times, and... As the name of that game suggests, it's right up my street. It's something that I've really got a soft spot for in my heart because I played it when I was younger and I really, really enjoyed it. If you don't know what the game Diplomacy is, don't fret. That's not the only thing I talk about in this interview. And for once, I'm being interviewed. I'm not interviewing someone else. So if you were to look up the podcast Diplomacy Games, just search Diplomacy Space Games and you'll find... A lovely podcast, which is all about playing the strategy game Diplomacy and its different variants, because there is a lot of different variants for this Diplomacy game. Other than that, it's just two guys from Australia, which sells the podcast in of itself, but it's two guys from Australia shooting the breeze while in certain pubs and drinking very special, sophisticated drinks, mostly certain types of beers which I've never heard of, and having certain guests on. Sometimes not guests, sometimes talking about the games that they're playing, but in the last three years, they've released 50 episodes, and I had the privilege of being on for episode 50. So yes, you'll find this interview on their RSS feed, on their podcast feed, but you can also find it here. But do check out their show. I recommend you check it out. Kaner and Ambi do a great job every time they're on in making the listener feel like Almost like they're looking in on a game of diplomacy. And if they're not playing the game live or talking about their exploits, then they have an interesting guest on who has done something along those lines. I don't want to talk about that anymore. I want to introduce you guys to this interview, which I really had a fun time doing, and explain to you a little bit about what we actually talked about. In many ways, this is a jack-of-all-trades interview. We talk about all sorts of things. Obviously, we talk about my experience with playing the game Diplomacy. We also talk about other stuff like Versailles, the delegation game, and a few other things. But if you're interested in hearing people just have a nice conversation 
and talk a little bit about Brexit and talk about diplomacy failing and my experiences of playing the game and why I enjoyed it, etc., etc., then look no further. It's about an hour long, but if you want to hear more about what these guys do, then do make sure and check out this episode in their feed. That again, diplomacygames.com, and the link will be in the description, as always. So how am I doing? Well, I'm doing great, history friend. Thank you for asking. For the last few weeks, I've been really getting down and dirty in the Thirty Years' War. Oh, and actually, would you believe it, in front of me right now, I have a mug with Richelieu's face on it, and I'm going to do something I've never done before. Take a sip from this bad boy. (sighs) That's pretty gross. You probably didn't want to hear me do that, but you should know that it's full of coffee at the moment, and... I need some coffee because it's a Saturday morning and I haven't really used my voice all that much for the last month or so, which is the way I want it because, let's be fair, my vocal cords needed a break. We will be returning with the Thirty Years' War from the 9th of September and I'm really looking forward to returning to it, but until then, this little episode right here should serve as a nice stopgap for all budding history friends. Remember once again to check out Diplomacy Games, but before you do that, check out this interview. Zach Twomley, um, welcome to the Diplomacy Games podcast, and I guess by default um, you can welcome us to your podcasting. We're doing this as a bit of a joint thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's, an, it's nice to have a nice uh, collaboration during the summer that has very little to do with Versailles and that I don't have to stay up very late to do. So thanks very much for having me on, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. And I guess it's interesting because you, you are in summer. You've just come back from holidays from Sicily, have you? Mm-hmm. Yep. How was it? <laughs> uh, let's just say let's just say if you're going to go to Sicily, don't go to the part of Sicily I went to because <laughs> Palermo is not not the nicest place. But it, it was nice to nice to get away, and I and I did read a lot of stuff about longbows and and everything. So I had a nice relaxing break. Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with longbows now. It's just the way my brain works. But it was a nice break. But yeah, I I basically I was too tired. You know, when you're you're too tired to go on holidays, that's what I was basically like. And I should have just stayed in bed for a week, pretty much. But it was still fun. Were longbows much in use in in Sicily? Um, it wasn't the fact that I was that I was in Sicily, so I felt compelled to read about longbows. It was more the fact that I just surrounded myself for whatever reason. I think it's because it was just not Versailles. I surrounded myself with pretty much like Middle Ages English history stuff. So I was I had an audiobook of Dan Jones on the fly about the Plantagenets. Well, I also had I was reading on my Kindle. You know Bernard Cornwell's uh, series. He's most well known for Sharp, the Sharp books and the Sharp kind of TV series. But he also wrote this really great series on an archer called Thomas of Hookton. And it's a four part series that basically covers his life during all the big uh, English victories during the Hundred Years War. So it was just so nice to get into something fresh and read historical uh, historical fiction and just like just relax, really. So yeah, the the re- I pretty much read the entire holiday. I think I stepped outside like three or four times and just stayed in air conditioned rooms and read. So that was my holiday. Fantastic. I think actually uh, Kane has recommended to me before to read um, Burn Cornwall. I think it was the, uh, the the series around King Arthur as a beginning to kind of get me hooked into that one. So uh, I did. I think download it onto my Kindle. I haven't actually listened read it yet. So um, anyway. Mm. 
maybe I'll need to get back into it. So, um, oh, it sounds great. Um, I, I guess it's that many of your listeners will know you as that um, crazy history podcaster that's, you know, as you said before, has put out you know, massive, massive long episodes. I think there was 85 for Treaty of Versailles. Yep. <laughs> but not only just that one, but a lot of your other series, you know, I've listened to over, over the years and quite often you occasionally will drop in, you know, reference that sounds like you're talking around the game diplomacy. So it mm. seems to me that you have like a special place in your heart for the game. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, first I, I have to make a confession, and my confession is that I've never actually played the online diplomacy game because in my experience, because my experience literally consists of about 10 years ago when my friend Sean and I were in his caravan in Wexford. It, we, we literally just for like an entire week we sat around with us, the two of us and, and a few other guys, and we played this game Diplomacy, and we would not... We were very strict because both of us we were playing the game for the first time, so we were following the rules to the letter. But we had the game in a specific room, and we weren't allowed to go into that room because, you know, these games can go on for several days. No one was allowed to go into that room except for the parents, and the parents, whenever they went in, they had to kind of make sure that no one had moved their pieces around the board and no one had disturbed anything or anything. So there was this well-preserved room for several days of the week. And I don't even know if we actually finished the game in the end, but I think just just from that, I've always wanted to play the game since, whether offline or online. But believe it or not, I never had the time. But I've I've always had a special place in my heart for it because that game was just, it was so unlike anything I'd ever played before. And I, I really enjoyed it. And it got my it got my juices flowing in in a history sense because I mean it's set in 1914, which is kind of like like it was it was so great to me to play a game set in that era, and I didn't even know a game like that existed until this very dusty copy of it was taken out of the old cupboard in the caravan, and uh, without even planning to it, it basically became a, a diplomacy holiday. So yeah, that's my experience, and it was really great, very nostalgic. So, what a fantastic introduction to the game! What 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 uh, what what country did you play? Can you remember, Zach? <laughs> this might actually surprise you a bit, but because we had, we didn't actually have enough players to play all of the all of the all of the countries. So I played Italy and <laughs> and the Ottoman Empire at the same time. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a that's a powerful combination if if used correctly. Yeah? Yeah, well, I didn't use them correctly, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they weren't that powerful. But it was a, it was a good learning experience, and I think realizing how how difficult it was to play as Italy and uh, and yeah, how kind of ruined they are from the beginning. It, it kind of gave me a soft soft spot for Orlando later on. I think in in Versailles. One thing I'm interested in there, Zach, is obviously you've had that experience. From just, I mean, we, we've both Kanda and I are obviously very, very familiar with the game, but probably a lot of your listeners aren't, and I'm sure they're probably going, "Oh, it sounds like Risk, but set in World War One." Um, did you want to go into a little bit more detail from your perspective around how what what's, what makes the game very different to most other games with its dynamics and the mechanics behind it? Sure. Yeah. Well, for me, the big thing was all the negotiations that you do with people in person and the whole like what I know. I don't know if you guys play it this way, but we were very strict about it. So you literally wrote down the moves you were going to make and 
you couldn't deviate them. You couldn't deviate from them, rather. And when you were negotiating deals with the different people there, you left the room and sometimes went like several several feet down the driveway so no one could actually hear what you were saying we were very we were very strict about it and we just did not trust each other at all and sure enough i think i remember my friend Sean and I pretending that we were at loggerheads for the entire thing. And then in the end, launching this uh, very, very well planned, but very badly executed attack on one of our rivals, which I think might have been France. I think Sean was playing as Britain. I can't remember it very well because it was several years ago. But as far as I remember, the main thing that distinguishes it is the negotiation aspect, which I really got a kick out of because it felt like you were being one of those sneaky statesmen from 1914, doing your best to uh, look honest and dependable while in fact being utterly deplorable. <laughs> got it in one. Uh, I guess for your <laughs> listeners, the way we actually had we had an interview recently with a, um, a, a developer of what's called variants of, of diplomacy, so it's not just the standard um official board but someone's gone through and changed some things and as a result of that he kind of explained it I think very very well which is unlike a lot of other games where you've got a random element usually driven by dice or something else like that or drawing cards Mm. the random element is actually just the players themselves and how they play Um, the fact that this game is not like um, well how how do we put this nicely you're not necessarily always truthful to people when you're talking to them but sometimes you need to be to kind of build alliances and build relationships to get them on board to ultimately try to uh, make sure that you're the the winning player so to speak Mm, yeah i I just really enjoy the dynamic and yeah i'm looking at your your past interviews here um baron von powell legendary diplomacy variant developer of 1900 ambition and empire and the college of cardinals that sounds that sounds very very interesting what's that like to play <laughs> um i haven't actually played college of cardinals yet um but the 1900 variant is a it's, it's a gorgeous map and it's um well amby you've you've played it more than i have yeah so basically the, the one thing within Normal diplomacy, the actual game officially starts in the year 1900, even though you're actually playing a board that's physically set in 1914. Ah. So what, um, what Baron did is actually went back to those pre-Balkan War borders, um, so you actually got a greater projection of the Ottomans into um, both uh, the Balkans, but also uh, obviously predating the Italian campaigns into Tripoli. So mm. um, you've got a you do actually it was triple a neutral anyway it doesn't really matter um, but the, the thing is that that kind of creates that scenario but you've also then got um, britain setting up and beginning the game uh, not just in um its normal you know the the home islands but also having a presence in uh, egypt controlling the suez canal and right fleet yeah Gibraltar, mm. as well as mm. um french forces obviously around modern day algeria and tunisia so, uh, and, and the other thing, of course, is it, it beefs up the size of Germany to actually better reflect its powerhouse nature um, going into the 20th century. Uh, sure. And the other thing, I think, which was really interesting about the way it's, it's put together is the fact that the, the Russian player um, basically can kind of create a, a, an extra reserve army if it's being just um, hammered and nailed much the same way that you can imagine that the Russians in real life could kind of draw upon the resources in Siberia to be able to kind of, uh, as they did with Napoleon and, and as they did obviously with Hitler, to be able to push back. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So it's it's two very kind of different playing experiences. So 
would you say that 1900 kind of offers a more a more fleshed out version of diplomacy i uh, think yeah. so yeah yeah it, it i think it's kind of considered to be more um balanced um as a game right so it's 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 harder to um, win. It's it's um, there are certain not obviously within a normal uh, classic map uh, within diplomacy. There's certain um, parameters there where certain people know how to play certain um, openings and how to, to do things. And and often some players, like you mentioned before, Italy is usually in a very very bad position and can't do very well. Um, some players find it very difficult to play uh, Austria-Hungary. Uh, others find it easy. So it, it's quite interesting how that works out. But I think some of the other variants that Baron von Powell put together, like the College of Cardinals, uh, which he co-developed, and it's still not quite there. He's, he's been developing it now for how long, Kana? For about 10 years now? Uh, yeah, with a guy, Tim Hay- Haywood. Yeah, So, um, and that one is based around... Um, well, it's, it's basically around the period of the, of the Crusades and um, the prior to the schism within the uh, the Catholic Church. Um, mm. so you've also got you know the um, the um, the powers within um, where is it? There's the Russians and there's another uh, Orthodox player as well. I'm trying to remember who they all are. But anyway, it's Byzantine. Yes, yes. So and you've got also actually was, yeah, I think it was the Byzantine Empire. It was before they, they'd um, they'd fallen. So, um, and that's got some really, really strange um, extra dynamics over and above standard um, board game play, such as you know when you're electing the Pope and the powers that the Pope has, and right, yeah, very, very complex, very interesting though. Yeah, so it's kind of like medieval total war, but on a board game, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm playing a lot of that at the moment because it really helps me relax, especially when I set the difficulty to easy and can't possibly lose. <laughs> so giving that kind of backstory around what diplomacy is all around um from your experience i mean you know from reading many many different um histories obviously you spent a fair amount of time recently with the with the great war um but obviously a lot of other periods as well is there a, a two or three figures in history that you know you've studied who you think you know if you actually sat them down at a diplomacy board they would do incredibly well and why do you think that i think first and foremost i think you'd have to start with bismarck and that just because to me i think the 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 board game itself the way it's laid out by 1900 is essentially because of what bismarck did i think it might actually be really interesting to have like a different version of diplomacy set maybe like in 1864 or something just because it would be so different to what we're used to and it would really show just exactly how much of an impact that guy had also of course it goes without saying his his diplomatic dealings in the 70s and 80s were purely based around those principles you have in diplomacy which is almost like protecting what you have and ensuring that no one else gets too powerful with sneaky backdoor dealings which most of the time left pretty much everyone unhappy except for germany but because of bismarck's force of personality he was just able to carry it through i mean there's a lot to be said for the fact that like you know his domination of german politics didn't exactly prepare that country very well into the 20th century with the results that when he was gone, there was pretty much no one that could fill his shoes. But at the time, Bismarck didn't really care about successors. All he really cared about was uh, himself and making himself as powerful as possible and his own legacy. And yet still, he's kind of he's got this kind of attractive pull, I think, just like all the great men in history would do 
you're almost drawn to them without even really being able to understand why. And even though you know they're not saints by any means, the kind of uh, the dynamism and the, the the fact that they got things done pretty much, whether or not they did them in the right way, really draws me to to a guy like Bismarck and makes me think that he would be very good indeed at playing diplomacy. Or the, Although I'm not sure that by the end of it, we'd feel like he played entirely fair, to be honest. <laughs> Very true. Um, any others that spring to mind? Um, I think uh, around in the same era, I think uh, Benjamin Disraeli was remarkably good at, at not even just playing the game, but almost shaping the narrative. Like he pretty much transformed what it meant to be the Conservative Party and to be a, a Tory in the 1870s, mostly because he brought up national honor and kind of equated like equated the Conservative Party with patriotism and national honor and all these kinds of things. So he's very interesting because of that. So I think if if those two were playing, if Disraeli and Bismarck were playing, Disraeli would certainly be the loudest player and insisting with his allies that they had to go to war. When in reality, maybe he had a different plan and you wouldn't really realize that until the very end. So actually, I think it would be very interesting to have these historical people playing as their own countries. At least it would result in fewer deaths and not as much uh, not as much damage being caused to the world. But yeah, I think if uh, Disraeli is and Disraeli and Bismarck are definitely two. And to think of another one, I I, it's hard. It's hard to think of that many in the kind of modern era. Maybe Churchill could be an obvious one, but also further back, I think, to like to to earlier times. So at the moment, I'm looking at the Thirty Years War and Axel Oxenstierna was the name of the Swedish chancellor during the Thirty Years War. And from a period of about 1611 to 1654, I think it was, he essentially was the prime minister of Sweden. And as you can imagine, during that time, Sweden became essentially a major power in Europe by virtue of the victories that its king, Gustavus Adolphus, won on the battlefield. So it was all up to Axel Ossenstierna to protect all of that. And he did a remarkably good job considering the very low resources, very low population that Sweden had. And as a result, then, Sweden was maintained as a major power up till about the Great Northern War in the early 1700s. So it's a remarkable achievement. People often credit Sweden's like arrival on the great power scene to Gustavus Adolphus. But I think there's a lot to be said for Axel Oxenstierna or Axe Ox, as I've taken to calling him because his name takes so freaking long to say. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for crediting him with some of that creation of empire as well. So I think he'd be very interesting to have, although I'm not sure what, what country he'd play, because as far as I can recall, you can't actually can't actually play as Sweden, can you, in, in diplomacy? Not on the classic board. In, in that um, that other variant we mentioned about um, Baron von Powell put together, which was Ambition and Empire, you can play as Sweden in that one. Oh, see, there you go. So if we if we had the three of them together, so Disraeli playing as Britain and, and Bismarck playing as, as Germany and Axel Oxenstierna playing as Sweden, that'll be a very interesting game to just watch over. And it'd be interesting to see especially how the three of them clash with one another. Or maybe they just turn out to be firm friends and screw the rest of the world over. Who'll know? <laughs> you can complicate matters further by throwing Talleyrand into France and... Uh, and uh, Metternich into Austria as well, if you want to make things really interesting. That's true. And those are two very obvious ones there that I missed. But because my head is all 30 years war at the moment, yeah. 
uh, <laughs> Axox kind of recommended himself to me. But yeah, that'd be very interesting. I think there's a there's a kind of a, a great person to play as as each power you could find without too much difficulty. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, dur- listening, actually, obviously during the the Versailles anniversary uh, project, there was actually one particular episode and one quote that you read out in episode 73 which was around when the allies were receiving the counter proposals from the germans mm. and um it was a quote that you read about colonel house describing lloyd george and when you when you said this to me i sounded like a diplomacy player critiquing another diplomacy player <laughs> and um so I'll, I'll actually reread your your quote uh, sure you quoted obviously as well and um this is obviously in the context of, of talking about the terms of the treaty. So uh, Colonel House was saying, quote, George and I dis- uh, were discussing the, the German objections. This uh, was the purpose of the luncheon. Lloyd George always amuses me. I'm sure hmm. he does not like me. And yet today one would have thought I was his best friend. He decided <laughs> to use me because he knows he is to have a fight with uh, Clemenceau about softening the terms, obviously the terms of the treaty, but you could equally apply that to a board uh, if you were playing a game. And, mm. on. and he also knows that the public opinion in England demands such softening. I always lead him one and then let him feel that I'm innocent of his motives and that he apparently succeeds in accomplishing his purposes with me. I enjoy being with him because he has so much charm and such a fine sense of humour. It is a great pity, though, that some of his qualities cause one to distrust him. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent quote. And actually, I managed to whiff it a little bit. Uh, you can tell that I that I was reading or writing rather late at night. It's not lead him one as I wrote. It's meant to be lead him on. But I didn't even I didn't even notice. So after after I read that, I was like, what does lead him one even mean? And I actually looked up what lead him one even means. And there was no record of that phrase existing. And then it turns out that it's actually lead him on. And I just made a mistake. So there you go. The, the great confession right here. There we are. I've requited your your incorrect quote. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> see all the ripples. See all the ripples I've created just by making that one mistake. But yeah, I, I I honestly think that that the it's it's it was just sublime being able to read the innermost thoughts of these different characters. Now it, it's innermost thoughts with a bit of an asterisk because of course House didn't actually write this diary. He was dictating it to someone else who wrote it down for him. And then on on the full knowledge that it would be read by other people. So he did use language like I don't know if you guys have ever written diary yourself, but you certainly wouldn't use flowery language when trying to describe things that have happened during your day. But that didn't stop Edward House at all. And he really did go on several tangents, but they make for fascinating reading and for fascinating listening as well. They really do capture the essence of what it was like being in the Council of Ten or Council of Four and everything else. And I do like his character sketches of the different people. He's surprisingly generous to some and then not to others. And it's it's nice to see his opinions of the people change too. So he starts off uh, being a bit wary of Lloyd George and feeling a bit kind of kind of unsure, maybe a bit sceptical towards Vittorio Orlando and not not necessarily distrustful of Clemenceau, but but not really being able to be sure of his motives. And by the end, he kind of feels as though Germany has been screwed over and that France is somehow to blame and that the Italians were difficult, but that Wilson should have listened to them more and that Lloyd George was basically a charlatan and he, he changed his mind like a weather vane, all this kind of thing. So, yeah, you could easily use this to describe a diplomacy player. 
But I think what's interesting about it is that this wasn't even a game. This was real life. And these people were looking at each other in in the kind of way that you would normally associate with a game like Diplomacy. But unfortunately, it was real life and it had ramifications for us that exist to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess what would be interesting is to get your take on on who at the the Treaty of Versailles actually was a terrible Diplomacy player. Um, listening to the Versailles show, show, it kind of was very clear to me that Vittorio Orlando seemed to be a, a statesman totally incapable of winning over his allies to his cause and, and got a really dud deal as a result. You know, the way he'd kind of carry on about Fumumia. Sorry, I'll mispronounce that because I heard it, you say it 50 million times, Zach, but I can't even say it myself. <laughs> Can you do it for me? Uh, Fiume. Fiume. Thank you very much. That little enclave on the Croatian coast. Um, yeah, you know how to carry on about that and carry on about the Treaty of London and and you know create all sorts of issues. Obviously, with um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, was there anyone else at the um, during the whole process that you felt was also just terrible if they were playing that game and uh, in real life? <laughs> I don't necessarily think anyone was particularly terrible. I think that people pretty much like the nature of a compromise is that everyone remains unhappy, but. The, the the real problem with Orlando, just to look at him for a second, is that he didn't have the leverage that other people had. And because he didn't have the leverage, he felt the need to compensate by being more stubborn. And now he wasn't stubborn all the way through, but he was stubborn enough at the beginning to make the other three turn against him in a way. And because he didn't have that pull or that influence that the other three had, they felt content to ignore him. And often as a result of that, he reacted in, uh, in in an understandable way because he was frustrated that like certain rules were applying to him but not to others, this kind of thing. And he wasn't being let in on many of the big plans. But the thing that I really found interesting is that just because he didn't have all of this big kind of this is this influence, it didn't mean that he wasn't being talked about. Like when he left uh, in late was it late uh, late April uh, mm-hmm. uh, when he left for a while to go back to Rome ostensibly to basically talk to the parliament in Rome, but also, as it turned out, to kind of put some pressure on the big three while he was away. The big three talked about him pretty much nonstop for the first few days of May. Like, there were several times when I found all of this stuff, because I was working off the minutes that are available online, really, and a lot of that I had to condense even further. Like there were several days when all they did was talk. And it's not that they came up with new things. They were basically saying, I'm worried about Victoria Orlando. And the other guy would say, yeah, me too. And then the other guy would say, yeah, me too. What are we going to do about it? And then they get distracted by something and then it would continue on the next day. And it was mad. But yeah, a, a very long, this is a very long winded way of me saying, I think Orlando would have been better had he had more leverage And I think that's like if you recognize in diplomacy that a player is essentially beaten, you're not exactly going to team up with him and and work in his interests or really even help him out for the sake of your benefit. Because if he gets eliminated, then you'll be all on your own. So I think there's a lot to be said for the importance of having that leverage, having that power, all that kind of thing. As, as, As far as finding someone who was also quite bad, I can't. No one really comes to mind. I think you have to look at the minor powers. I mean, it's to everyone's surprise, really, that Ioan Bratianu, the Romanian premier, did so well in the end because nobody liked him, which is kind of, that always made me laugh. It'd be like that diplomacy player who everyone hated throughout the entire game because they were so insufferable. But then at the end, they somehow managed to win, even even despite all that. 
So really, uh, Bratiana was 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 lucky because the Romanians, not the Romanians, sorry, the Hungarians had that uh, communist takeover by Bela Kuhn for much of 1919, which freaked out the big four and eventually led to them granting all of these crazy, ridiculous concessions to Romania, granting Romania portions of territory that they never should have had. Like Romania's population went from about 7 million to 17 million after the peace conference. And much of the people that were in that 17 million by no means identified as Romanian. So they, with that, I think that was one of the biggest whoopsies of the peace conference, giving Romania all that stuff. But as I learned looking through all this, and I would have gone into this in more detail if I had time to look at the Hungarian peace treaty, but I didn't have enough time to really do it. And by then I was kind of losing my sanity anyway. So, But what I really learned was that the big four didn't really have the, the power themselves to project into Eastern Europe. And they kind of just let the Romanians do what they wanted to do because to them it was better that a insufferable guy like Bratianu gains all this territory then the Bolsheviks gain the territory instead. So, yeah, very long-winded answer, but hopefully you, you catch my drift. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I think the, the one that stands out to me probably as a bit of a sideline would have been actually um, Woodrow Wilson himself. Um, mm. The fact that he came into it with obviously very high ideals and it didn't take long for him just to kind of whittle away and bargain away all of his principles effectively uh, just to try to get an outcome where at least everyone would have signed a piece of paper saying, yes, we agree to you know having, a, um, having the League of Nations and then ultimately end up not being able to deliver it within his own um, country as a result of you know not being you know, politically mindful around the, the balance of power and how much it had shifted back in the States. Yeah, he was it was looking at Wilson was very strange because I was in Boston last November and even talking to some Americans there. Some of them have very strong opinions on Wilson, which I understand. I mean, the guy was an out and out racist and he did some other domestic things that weren't particularly good. I've been told like American history is by no means my forte, but I really kind of delved into the character of Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wilson. And what he essentially wanted was for the United Nations to exist in 1919. And he thought that the United Nations would literally fix every single thing that was wrong with the world. And because of that, even though he recognized at several several moments that the decisions he was making were, were wrong and, and that they would be leaving people unhappy, his answer increasingly as time went on and he became more exhausted, I think, was that, well, I know you're unhappy, but don't worry, because the League of Nations will will make you happy and will, will solve everything. Like it was his answer to the Irish, to the Chinese, to to the to the Japanese as well, to the Italians. There was all these ideas put forward like plebiscites and things like that that would solve any issues that people had. And the British, that, that's what really interests me, because our vision of the League of Nations that we have handed down to us uh, in the interwar years is the British and French, like basically trying against against the, the tides of history, if you like, to try and make the League work. Where in reality, if you look at it in 1919, they didn't even really want the League of Nations. I mean, some people certainly recognized it as 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 useful but only in so far as it protected their own interests like france wanted the league to protect them against germany and britain wanted it to preserve its empire so they weren't really interested in the kind of high-minded ideals that wilson had but they went along with it because they were like well that's what the president of america wants and we want america on side and then of course the americans don't even join the thing that wilson uh, thought up so it doesn't really work out for them in that end it was just a weird way for history to go but and just like that, I've completely forgotten the question because I've gone on a mad ramble. <laughs> it's okay. I kind of added a little added a little bit more around bad diplomacy players at Versailles. Um, so, <laughs> uh, actually, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll be upfront with Zach is quite clear. I'm asking most of the questions here, which isn't normal, but that's probably because I'm more the history nerd on on our show. Uh, Kana, is there anything that you wanted to jump in at any stage with? By the way, uh, I'll, I'll I'll interject. I'll interject. Okay. Ooh, interesting. I'll, I'll jump, I'll jump in. big words. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm listening, quite fascinated by you know this this discussion around an area I know uh, vague bits of knowledge about, but not not as in depth as you guys. So please continue. Well, if you'd like to get that in-depth knowledge, all you have to do is simply listen to 85 episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project, complete with 68 hours of content. What else would you want to do with your life? I mean, come on. (laughs) I I, I have listened to some of them, Zach. Yeah, I have listened to some. Okay. (laughs) I think some is enough for most people. Uh, Yeah, I think some would have been enough for me, but unfortunately I had a a duty to work against my will on many many occasions. So, yeah. (laughs) What's actually interesting, I think, is if on a lot of the various uh, podcast um, apps, uh, I think some people call them podcatchers or whatever like that, um, when you search for the word diplomacy, when diplomacy fails tends to come up number one and diplomacy games comes up number two usually. Ah. So um, obviously totally different <laughs> totally different things we're both talking about, but, <laughs> but strangely similar at the same time. Yes, so. but I have to be honest, by the end of it there, I was I was really like, if I could get away with drinking on the podcast, I definitely would have done because that was the way, <laughs> that was the way I was going by the end of it. <laughs> 
that's a good point. So that if any of your listeners to um, WDF um, happen to go across to Diplomacy Games and listen to our show, um, we often do interviews like this, but we'll obviously do an intro and an outro, and they're usually in a, in a pub. We um, I don't think we've actually been in the same pub twice, except for when we do like a back-to-back recording, like a double episode. Um, as a result, unfortunately, folks, we do get a little bit drunk occasionally, and um, we kind of sometimes swear a little bit too. So a bit of a a bit of a parental warning there. If you um, don't want the kids to listen to that, then uh, don't listen to our <laughs> show. But otherwise, um, yes, feel free to have a listen, and we'll be talking all around our game and around diplomacy. Um, talking about games, actually, you ran a whole parallel game series during the middle of the Versailles Treaty uh, with oh, the delegation boy. game. Um, so I think you were nuts at the start to to go with eighty five episodes while still being a universal lecturer. Um, yeah, and then you think you throw this on on the on the mix as well. Um, so I remember at the time because this is also I went, okay. This is interesting when you started describing what you thought uh, the delegation game would be like an alternate history of the Treaty of Versailles and you yeah, it being a cross between fantasy football, Dungeons and Dragons, and diplomacy. Mm. How do you think that panned out, what your vision was for what you thought it was going to be and how it actually ended up transpiring? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's actually very funny, and it's it's a really nice thing to say that I actually underestimated how passionate people would be in the delegation games. So for a long time, I was like, right, I'll have to do this, I'll have to do this, and each week I'll pro- I'll propose these things for people to vote on, and, and that'll be that. It didn't occur to me that people would set up their own uh, Facebook Messenger groups, which was the main way people communicated. They set up Facebook Messenger groups for each treaty. They negotiated separately of me independently. And then at the end of the week, it turned out that the things I had planned to ask them to vote on, they weren't really relevant. So it, w- it, it made more sense for me to ask them to vote on things that they had proposed themselves. So it was really nice in a way to have that. But at the same time, of course, and my wife was driven mad as well, because at one point she was like, I want to be added to one of these groups in like February. And then at, by the end, they were adding her to every single one because they thought that she wanted to be added to them all. So then like me, she'd be like, Zach, there's another group. What the hell are they talking about this time? Like it was very, very funny. But yeah, I had to uh, I had to remove the Facebook Messenger app from my phone as well as Facebook as well by like April or or, or March, because I just it, it wasn't just the constant pinging or the fact that I could like mute the messenger groups. It was that people would contact me outside of it and be like, hey, I have a question about this, which is fine. And I wanted them to be able to do that. But you need to have some way of, of switching off. And when you're on like basically on call 24 seven, you never can switch off. So, yeah, it, it was it was great to see the game develop as it did. And to be honest, I wish that I wish that almost I could have traded university lecturing for that instead, because I would have loved to have been given given more attention because I feel like I wasn't as involved as I wanted to be. And I basically wrote the script each each Friday as as it, as it became time to do that. But I would have liked to have taken more part in the discussions and and presented myself more as the chairman. But uh, I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes at all, but it got, it got a bit wild. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well done. <laughs> it got it got a bit wild uh, at several respects because, oh. Yeah, quite a few times I, I was thinking, okay, is there anyone going to be left you know, alive the way they're all getting bumped <laughs> off at various stages? Someone asked me if I was... 
Yeah, someone asked me if I was challenging my inner Tarantino because several of them like just I like it, it was actually quite funny because a few weeks just whatever way it happened people were like I want to change my character or they they stopped they were like I can't keep up with this it's it's far too crazy which obviously I understand so they kind of bowed out and then they were like whenever people did bow out they were like here's the idea I have for how my character dies. It's <laughs> They were never like, yeah, my, my character retires and, and has a nice family and lives happily ever after. It was always like, my character dies horribly, gets frozen in the river and like gets gets chopped them into little bits and like, oh, it's just crazy stuff. Like really, really crazy stuff. Um, if any of your um, delegation game players are having withdrawal um, and they kind of like what we've talked around about diplomacy, um, by all means, I think they should be looking at that game. Was there any players in particular either with their you know their alter egos or whatever that you think would be great players? Oh, oh, several, several come to mind. Some, some of them. Now we had at one point we had thirty five people technically playing the game, and. That, although that sounds a bit crazy, what it really looked like was about 10, maybe 15 people being properly active at one time. So I kind of focused on them and then they kind of gave a lot back in return. I think Kieran Murphy, who was playing a, a Newfoundland delegate, Arthur McCalville, he did a lot of work. There was another guy who was playing as a character called Bruce Pug, and he was an American kind of businessman who was kind of I suppose you could say he wasn't a fan of Woodrow Wilson, so he was kind of supporting Roosevelt instead. But because basically in our alternative history, Roosevelt doesn't die in early 1919, and he goes on to have a have a have another term as president. So yeah, it was it was it was very very interesting uh, to to go through all that. But I think several other people as well. Uh, Moshi played basically the contrarian contrarian candidates he played first he played this guy called Bonifacio Fidel who was like this Italian kind of secretly Zionist character and then he switched to Vittorio Orlando just for the fun of it and it was very interesting to see him play as Orlando because he was basically arguing from the same point that Orlando in real life was arguing as and just like in real life people were resentful of his requests and didn't like when he asked for certain things they also had a few other people like there was one guy who played as uh, this guy he invented called uh, Sir Alistair Tankred, who was this British guy and basically resurrected uh, uh, this alliance with Spain and ensured that the British Empire went on and well into the 1940s. And of course, in our alternative history, because we made such a mess, there is no Second World War. Although the Russians are being a bit troublesome and Poland is absolutely ginormous. So whoever played Pilsudski, I can't remember his name, the actual player, but he did a lot of good work as well. And by the end of it, we had a very, very different, very different history to the one we might be used to. I, I actually, yeah, that was a really good um, way you concluded that um, that series by having this vision into the future although technically it's in in the past in our in our time uh, timeline mm. and um it's actually been really kind of um i don't know this that may sound a bit weird but it's been fun just listening to you talk today around some of these characters i went oh yeah i remember him yeah i remember him I remember yeah. <laughs> yeah it's weird you get kind of weirdly attached to them as well and then when they start arguing with each other it's so funny it's like this is the way i described it in one of the episodes when sometimes things got a bit real and people got a bit offended at one another and i was like guys you're playing fictional characters arguing about fictional treaties and saying that your fictional feelings are hurt like come on <laughs> 
<laughs> get a grip, put things in perspective, and and stop being so uh, stop getting so inflamed about things that aren't real and never happened. Uh, but yeah, like it, people, uh, just like when playing diplomacy, people can have dust ups with people in real life over things that happen. So there you go. Cool. So talking dust ups in real life, um, as a bit of a segue. In real life, you obviously also have that role of um, university lecturing, and you you do um, that with particular courses around the EU, um, mm. which obviously touches a lot on Brexit at the moment. Um, if you kind of imagine that the various leaders, um, and I think we're recording this now towards the end of July, so I think it's it's just before the uh, the UK ends up choosing a new prime minister. Mm. Um, if you were thinking about the leaders, um, past and present, or actually past and potentially future in the UK, and obviously the EU, uh, is there anyone there that you felt look they've um, been very, very diligent with the way that they've conducted their negotiations and the way they've um, done things, and, and those who have been you know very, very poor at doing that, so to speak, from a, a diplomacy perspective, diplomacy from a to- game perspective, not necessarily foreign affairs. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, to be honest, it's it's very hard to be positive, especially in Ireland with the, with what Brexit means for Ireland mm. and how no one really realised before they were arguing for Brexit what it would mean for Ireland because nobody mentioned Ireland at all or the Northern Irish border during the 2016 campaign. But the problem with Brexit, there's many problems with Brexit, but one of the main problems is that it's very hard to find shining lights in it because just when you think it can't get any worse it does start to get worse and you just want to throw your hands up in despair but yeah the fact that brexit was developing and unfolding during the spring of this year while i was also trying to understand what it meant to be a lecturer didn't exactly make things uh, easy for me because week on week it was like there was new things happening more like day on day and sometimes hour on hour things changed so I, I did dedicate a lot of time to teaching them about brexit but i'm not sure if they were any closer to really understanding it by the end of time but yeah, it was, it's very hard to kind of find people that really stand out. I mean, I think if you were to characterize them as diplomacy players, Theresa May would be that character who just goes just goes against against the grain of of, of people's opinions and just stubbornly refuses to relent at all costs and literally just tries to hammer home this this deal or this arrangement that you make might make with someone which seemed like a good idea a while ago but then just just doesn't work but they won't listen so they keep on pushing it relentlessly and maybe if you were to look at in the eu maybe Juncker, jean-claude Juncker. He might be like a kind of a person who tries to make everyone get along, but then has no time really for any kind of nonsense. Uh, for us, maybe closer to home, our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar. <laughs> like, it's it's interesting because in Ireland, most of the time, I don't know what it's like in, in Australia, but we don't really have much time for our politicians because we don't really particularly like them that much. By and large, now this is some exceptions, of course, but when people started going on about Leo Varadkar and and basically the British press started to criticize him and Boris Johnson was like, why isn't he, why isn't his surname Murphy? I thought that all Irish people were were Murphys like then we're like, hey, shut up, shut up about our shut up about our Taoiseach. Only we get to criticize him kind of thing. It, it's funny, like we come weirdly to their defense. And I have to say, like. The Irish, our, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, and our Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Simon Coveney, they both did a good job of, of representing Ireland's interest and kind of standing firm for it. So 
in that sense and that that's being as well they didn't have all that much leverage although they did have the friendship and and firm agreements of the other european union states so in that sense i think i think they did quite a good job maybe you could consider them shining lights but i think i think time will tell as well i mean of course we've got a new commission president coming up ursula von der leyen or leiden i've heard her name pronounced very different ways but that that might make uh, things change a little bit so it's 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 interesting. It's still a developing situation. Still a developing situation. I was looking at some news reports before, and it was talking about in 2017, and they're like, "We won't understand what Brexit will look like for at least another year." And I'm like, "You poor people! It's still not clear what's happening." And we're what like over three years since the vote was held, and still no one really knows how it's going to pan out. Looking at it kind of historically, are there? Similarities to uh, another event in history that you could put parallels to that you know of? Um, In terms of Brexit or just, yeah. yeah. No, in terms of Brexit, yeah. I think it's interesting because what I was saying earlier about about Disraeli and... um, about Disraeli and changing what it means to be like a Conservative Party supporter and equating kind of patriotism and national honour with with the Conservative Party. I think a lot of people who, and it's just no real way to say this, but a lot of people who don't understand the European Union that well in Britain or a lot of people who feel like the European Union is to blame without really kind of understanding why, and they've been kind of caught up in this in this narrative of like, oh, it's all it's all the European Union's fault that my town's really run down or it's all the European Union's fault. The industry I used to work in is, is gone bust or et cetera, et cetera, you know, and they blame the European Union because it's easier to do that than it is to kind of blame the actual socioeconomic problems that are in place or underfunding from the government. And it's funny, really, because if you look at the map, I mean, it's not funny, but you know what I mean? It's if you look at the map of, say, the UK and who voted leave and who didn't, like the likes of Cornwall, for instance, who have received by far and away the most funding from the EU, uh, at least in terms of the common agricultural policy anyway. So they would receive a lot of money and yet they still voted to leave as though it was like, the EU is ruining Cornwall kind of thing. So I think it, now it's a kind of awkward comparison in many respects, but it did occur to me several times, the kind of parallels. It's often said history doesn't repeat itself, but that it can rhyme on occasion. And I think in the 1870s with with Disraeli and changing the Conservative Party and what it meant and kind of blaming Russia for everything and saying we need to stop Russia, we need to go to war to stop Russia and 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 all this kind of thing, and now nowadays you have the alternative version of that in 2019 and a bit beforehand is oh well, uh, where's your Dunkirk spirit and and why don't you believe in Britain anymore? And you have people who might traditionally have voted say the Labour Party who would have been working class have now been kind of brought over to this narrative of like well like Brexit Party, but also this this idea that in order to be patriotic. You have to be against the European Union because the European Union is the one that's talking down to Britain and trying to restrict Britain on the world stage. And it's just interesting. It's probably not a very good parallel. But to me, sometimes I can see the I can see the kind of the the similarities between the two cases. Yeah, I think the the thing that stands out to me is just how how much everything is just degenerated over time with the arguments and. Um, the animosity, I guess, this is coming from an Australian's perspective. We only see bits mm. and pieces obviously being reported over here. But just the, 
the nature of, of what's proposed. I mean, if you kind of look at Boris Johnson and the way that he's obviously approached things from the very, very beginning, it, it's been almost like, again, I'll, I'll go from a diplomacy perspective, it's like, you know, he's trying to, you know, win the game, so to speak, by coming up and becoming the UK Prime Minister and is likely to achieve that, obviously, by potentially doing, you know, a, a no-deal Brexit and walking out and going, OK, great, I've, I've won, so to speak. But it's mm. like the equivalent of, um, you know, getting your half the board couldn't quite literally ripping it in half and walking away. It's like, well, <laughs> you won the game, but you can't play the game ever again now. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and there is, a, I've talked to some of my friends and some of them are like, do you know what? Britain deserves Boris Johnson because then they'll actually see, oh, wait a minute, this, this guy actually genuinely doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't have this kind of, like Boris Johnson is dying to be compared to Churchill and is dying to be like uh, this, this Churchillian figure. And I think it's it's about time the scales fell from everyone's eyes and realized just how unprepared he is. Like I was reading, I don't know if you saw recently his speech where he was saying that we will have we will have a way the the, the planes will run. We will still have Mars bars and all this kind of thing. And then he tried to wave this uh, kipper in front of people and was like, this kipper has to have plastic packaging on because the EU says it does. And then it turns out. A, like we won't have Mars bars because Britain won't be able to import all that stuff. So says some expert in the chocolate industry who works in Britain. And B, the kippers aren't covered in plastic per an EU regulation. That's a UK competence. It's got nothing to do with what the EU wants to do. And even if it did, you kind of have to wrap fish that is raw in plastic, which keeps it and, and, and also a coolant as well so that it doesn't go off. Like it's kind of common sense. But there you go. That's the that's the kind of stuff you're dealing with. And while it, he encourages people to cheer at the time, I think if one of two things happen, if he tries to get a deal and it doesn't work out, he'll have to retreat and maybe rethink his his uh, his plan, maybe thinking in terms of the game diplomacy. He'll have to maybe try and find different allies or try and do some other sneaky backroom deals, or he'll just go hell for leather and actually do no deal Brexit after all, which I don't actually think he wants to do. I think he's just saying what people think they want to hear. But if he does go with option B, then yeah, he will be essentially ripping up the board because as much as they're talking about no deal and believing in Britain and clean, pure Brexit they're going to discover very quickly how diabolical a no-deal Brexit actually is and what it genuinely means. It, it'll mean the death of several industries in the UK. It'll mean the end of several services. It'll mean like very, very vast complications, vast difficulties for all these different sectors of Britain that people don't even think about, like not just with the Northern Irish border, which is why people in Ireland are so concerned it, it, all sorts of different things as well that you don't even think of. Everything from queuing up in, in the Calais crossing, uh, like all sorts of stuff. Like just the, the, the list of problems are are endless. So here's hoping he doesn't rip up the board. Here's hoping something happens. Maybe I've seen it proposed that Boris Johnson is the only person who could conceivably propose a second referendum. So most people in Ireland are holding out for a second referendum with with good reason, I think. And you'd find a lot of people who in Ireland who would think that it's a good idea. But as we'll see, and as, as we've said before, time will tell. Very, very true. Talking about time will tell, time's been a very, very precious uh, commodity for you uh, in recent days and in recent months, really, hasn't it? Mm. Days at all. So you've wrapped up Versailles. I'm, um, I'm assuming that you're pretty close to finishing 1956. 
you're about to kick off later on the 30 Years War and Poland's not yet lost for Patreon listeners to uh, when diplomacy fails. Presumably you're still keeping your lecturing job and you're about to start a PhD? <laughs> you see, what I've done is I've discovered how to clone myself, so all of this is fine. <laughs> yeah, I I know it sounds it sounds like madness. It sounds like uh, repeating the stresses of what I've just gone through once again. But there's actually like a lot of uh, a lot of good things I've done to repair myself. Like I've got a lot of the Thirty Years War work and a lot of the Poland is not yet lost work done, and I. Uh, I will be reducing my hours in in university because, I mean, obviously you can't work however many hours I was working while also doing a PhD. But the aim is to the aim is to focus mostly on the PhD and just have it so I don't have to do any research or or new writing or anything for the Thirty Years War or uh, Poland is not yet lost. But yeah, I, I, I believe firmly in keeping the podcast going while I'm in, while I'm doing the, the PhD in Trinity. I don't want things to just go by the wayside. And also, just from a purely selfish perspective, it does bring me in an income. So if I just dropped it, then I wouldn't have that income coming through and I probably wouldn't be able to pay for the PhD in the first place. So, yeah. Brilliant. And and I guess as part of that whole process, we our show is probably not quite as big as yours so we obviously want to make sure that as part of the whole be fit thing uh within the, <laughs> uh, within your show you know we're, we're kind of speaking about it we're trying to get the word out about um uh, about when diplomacy fails um uh, so for any of our listeners that want to um, learn more about when diplomacy fails and history and, and some of the things we've talked about today um where should they go zach well i think the best the best thing to say is I'm on the social media, uh, the social media machine. So if you follow me on Twitter at WDF podcast, you could find the the podcast in Facebook. We have a Facebook group and a Facebook page nearly at 800 members, which is kind of crazy because that means we've got 800 nerds all in one space, which is real nice. But we also have a, a website, which I do need to spend more time and attention on. That's WDFpodcast.com. And that's that's probably the, the those are the, those are the kind of three best ways. The website, Twitter and Facebook are probably the best ones. And yeah, I hope to if for those that completely are confused by what BFIT actually is, BFIT is an acronym I used to use to kind of uh, get people to to support the podcast. And I've been very quiet on BFIT for a while, but I'm, I'm going to bring it back with a vengeance during the 30 years war. So just for old time's sake, B stands for blog. It's the Vassal State blog on WDF podcast. You can find it there. I'm just clicking around a little bit. Uh, e is for email. You can email me directly at uh, hotmail.com. Uh, F is for Facebook, as I said. I is for iTunes. Go and review the podcast or rate rate it or subscribe to it there. And T is for tell anyone or tell anything because I'm not fussy. So there you go. That's be fit. And if you do all those, then you'll be well on your way to making this podcast uh, get out there as much as possible. <laughs> that's, that's a good acronym. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that. I thought of that when I was like twenty, and I'm still being asked about how did you think about it. And I literally just moved letters around a board until I found some kind of some kind of word. And uh, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, but also quite wonderful at the same time. You're still in your twenties, Zach. I am twenty-seven. I'll be twenty-eight in October. So yeah. <laughs> There's probably a reason you can fit so much stuff into the day and not fall down. Because you're in your twenties still. 
Yeah, I'm I'm getting closer to the to the falling down stage, and I I just said there on Twitter, uh, I'm going to be nice to myself from now on and actually have weekends. So it's it's about one o'clock now. Well, it's twenty past twelve here in Ireland, and I'm going to have a beer because it's Saturday, and I just feel like I deserve one. So probably going to play some medieval total war and just just relax because relaxing is a very important part of this this process excellent very very true um i'm kind of guessing that um as part of your relaxing you're probably not going to get time to uh hop online to play any diplomacy anytime soon Uh (laughs) (laughs) well no i would i would really like to and i only just looked it up there and it sounds like something i'd really be interested in and i absolutely i'd love to play with you guys sometimes so we should definitely do collaboration like that in the future like I, I remember what before I started this podcast and before I really realized what podcasting was all about, I remember thinking like, oh, well, like, I really love the game diplomacy, but I wish that there was a way where you wouldn't have to arrange it so that you can get like eight people in a room at the same time or whatever it is, because that's obviously not always easy to get eight people in the room at the same time and keep them there for a week until the game is over. So playing online, I think at the time it was something I really wanted to do and I, I'd still be definitely up for it in the future. Excellent. Cool. Well, uh, if any of your listeners, uh, if they want to hear more about our show, uh, we're at diplomacygames.com, uh, much the same way with the iTunes and any of your, um, whatever you happen to be using for your, your podcasts, um, just search for Diplomacy Games. Um, we're at Twitter at Diplomacy Games. We don't use Facebook very often. We kind of found that we had all these fake accounts that were being created and we thought, oh, what's the point of dealing with them? Um, oh yeah, sorry about that. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> we we actually have on um, on our on our website. We've just recently put together a, a Google map, so that if anybody is uh, either participating currently in an actual diplomacy face to face community, or they're wanting to uh, get the word out about an existing community, or they want to start a community, um, if you go to uh, diplomacygames.com slash groups. Uh, you can basically um, submit your location and provide details there or if you're interested in kind of getting a game up. And that way, if people want to actually play the face-to-face version of it, uh, we're mm. trying to obviously create a bit of a, um, a momentum there, which we've fortunately been able to do where we are now in, in uh, Brisbane and Australia. We've got our first game next week, which uh, we're very much looking forward to. Oh, that's so cool. And uh, in the online space, there's actually... Um, well, there's like a plethora of, of different uh, sites that do all this stuff. So um, if you're interested in like the normal classic map, probably some of the example sites to go there would be uh, webdiplomacy.com or playdiplomacy.com. Both of those sites allow you to um, play those games and there's a couple of variants that you can do as well. Play Diplomacy has some more deeper variants and with um, some really, really, really interesting forum-based games. Um, normally that does... Actually, the forum-based games, I don't think you need a paid membership, but some other games you do. You do. There's also uh, Backstabber is Google that. Uh, there's probably a little bit more of a simpler interface. And uh, the one that um, Kaner and I tend to go to a lot, which is V Diplomacy, which uh, vdiplomacy.com, and the, the V obviously stands for variant because it's got what, over 100 different variants of, of the Diplomacy game? Wow. I think, I think about 30 of them are different iterations of the classic board, uh, but most of them are like crazy, crazy games. So um, uh, we've, I think both Kana and I are in about two or three um, massive games with about 36 players. Um, wow. It's called uh, Europa Renovatio or something. It's basically, yeah, basically. Like I said, during the Hundred Years' War, 
and it's the whole European map um, going down to you know North Africa and all the way out to uh, the Caucasus and and, uh, and Russia for thirty six players during that period of time, and it's just absolutely crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds intense. Yeah, it's a bit of a beautiful map, and um, yeah, so. That's always one to, to kind of get involved in as well. So, like, V Diplomacy doesn't cost a cent. It's totally free. So um, it's actually run out of um, Germany by a, a guy over there. So, yeah, excellent. Mm. Okay. Um, Zach Twomley from uh, When Diplomacy Fails, thank you very much for being on our show and thank you very much for participating in our collaboration. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on or or thanks for letting me release this into the the main podcast feed when diplomacy fails and i hope my listeners will check you guys out and if they are interested in the game diplomacy then there are a few better ways to listen to two friends getting slightly inebriated and as well <laughs> often more than slightly but anyway <laughs> i was just being generous i know <laughs> well, we, we are australians and it does get hot here and you do need to keep up your, your liquids so it's very fair yes and you can't always trust the water so i mean you can always trust beer absolutely <laughs> Good. thanks zach all right guys it's been a pleasure thank so- you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.